0: Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Sean Fetter. Last name is spelled F-E-T-T-E-R, and he's just published a book. This is the 60-year anniversary of the JFK assassination, and the title of his book is Undercover of Night, the United States Air Force and the Assassination of John F. Kennedy, and it's a two-volume book. book. It's a uh, thousand pages in total covering these two volumes, and uh, It's uh, really timely and it really asks a kind of a specific question and focuses on the Air Force. And Sean is the son of a United States Air Force veteran. His father served in the Pacific Theater of Operations. And as a member of the 20th Air Force, his father's own chain of command included General Curtis Emerson LeMay, somebody we'll talk about in this interview. Uh, He's worked in radio news, wire service news, print news, television news, reporter, copy editor, program host and producer, He's interviewed very important figures. He's been studying the JFK assassination for 40 years, and he wanted to find the truth by focusing initially on the answer to a single question, which had never been answered by anyone to his knowledge. How exactly was President Kennedy's body transported from Dallas back to Washington on the afternoon of the assassination? So he's gonna
1: talk more about that. So Sean Fetter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, William. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate not only your interest, but the interest of all of your many thousands of listeners, both in the United States and worldwide. Um, It's a great honor for me to have this opportunity to talk to people on this 60th anniversary of the assassination of the President of the United States. And I am very proud to be the author of a new two-volume book. Um, My research and investigation have now spanned 40 years. The writing of this book occurred during the past 11 years as I continued to research, investigate, locate witnesses, interview witnesses, find new documents, and analyze all of this material. So for me, the process of writing the book actually included a great many surprises and last minute discoveries, literally as I was in the process of writing the book itself. So I didn't simply do a bunch of research and then sit down and write. I was thinking and analyzing and critically reviewing the evidence even as I was creating the manuscript. Um, So it has been quite an epic journey, and as you mentioned earlier, it began not with a theory, not with a supposition, not with a hypothesis. But rather, it began with a question. And when I first began studying this case in the autumn of 1983, 40 years ago, I didn't know really anything about the JFK assassination. But what I did know was that ever since I was a kid, like everyone else, I grew up knowing that there was something not clear, not correct, not adequately explained about the assassination of the 35th president of the United States. And I realized that it was absolutely unacceptable in a country which calls itself a democracy that the leader of the country could be murdered in broad daylight on a major street in a major American city, and that this nation and its institutions would not undertake the kind of serious investigation that was necessary to come to real and concrete answers. And as an American, as a human being, I found that entirely unacceptable. And so in 1983, when I began to look at the case, I simply wanted to know what had happened to my president, and I began by reading a series of books, including the so-called Warren Report, and books by supporters of the false official story, like Gerald Ford and others, and I read books by critics of that official 1964 verdict, but none of the books ultimately were conclusive. And I realized that I would have to do some investigation of my own if I were going to really get a handle on what had happened in 1963 in Dallas, Texas. And within a few years I had begun to contact the FBI to obtain documents Directly from the source. I had begun to interview people with specialized knowledge of medicine and other areas pertinent to the case. And in the early 1990s, less than a decade after I began to study this crime, I asked a simple question which no one had adequately answered, which is, how exactly was the body of President Kennedy transported from Texas back to Maryland on the afternoon of November 22nd, 1963? And despite the fact that many books had been written about the case, and despite the fact that some of those books had been bestsellers, the fact was that no one, not the government, not the national media, and no one in the JFK research community actually possessed the answer to that question.
0: And it's an interesting question too, sorry to interrupt, but it's like, why did they have to rush his body back to Bethesda on the same day he was shot? Even that
1: question's interesting.
0: So what kind of research did you do, uh, original research? I mean, if you came up with a two volume book,
1: Right, no, that's fine. Uh, your, your question is a good one. Uh, they didn't have to rush his body back to the East Coast that day. Um, a choice was made to do so, but that choice was one of several options that were under discussion on Friday, November 22nd, 1963. I will come back to that point a little bit later in this podcast. But I want to say that when I asked this question in the early 1990s, how exactly was President Kennedy's body returned to the nation's capital that day? I realized that I would need to unilaterally and independently take over the Air Force aspect of the JFK assassination, and I would have to do it all by myself because to the best of my knowledge no one else was doing so, no one else was asking this question, and I knew it was central, I knew it had to be answered, and I had the sense that the answer to this question would lead to additional information. I did not know that it would unravel the entire case, but I knew it was an important question. So what I did, William, was make a decision, first of all, to tackle this aspect of the case, and then (laughs) sit down and realize that I had no idea how to proceed. And in the early 1990s, I didn't have a computer. I didn't have a cell phone. I had a landline, a spiral notebook and a blue ballpoint pen. And that was it in order to solve this mystery. But I had a very tenacious mind and I started making some telephone calls. I called Andrews Air Force Base. In suburban Maryland. I placed ads, small ads that I could barely afford in Air Force magazines like Airmen and Air Force magazine itself. There's actually a periodical with that title. And what I did was try to find people who had been unquestionably in the Air Force and on duty on November 22nd, 1963. My goal was to interview as many of them as possible and through very careful questioning and very thorough questioning determine what they saw, what they heard, what they did on the day of President Kennedy's assassination. One of the approaches I took was to go to Maxwell Air Force Base in Alabama. Maxwell is the home of the Air Force's Historical Research Center. And so I actually boarded a bus to go to Montgomery, Alabama. I found the least expensive lodging that I possibly could. And day after day, I went to the base And I went to the research center and I began looking at Air Force unit histories and Air Force rosters for military units that served the president in 1963. And the very first day I had a massive surprise when I learned that an Air Force unit mentioned in a best-selling book, a unit called the 1001st Air Base Wing, was not in fact the presidential unit. It was the host unit at Andrews Air Force Base at the time of the assassination. But I needed to find the unit which supplied the men who served on Air Force One, and the backup plane, which is commonly referred to as Air Force Two, and other key United States Air Force aircraft. So I immediately doubled my workload on the very first day at Maxwell Air Force Base, because I now had an entirely separate unit to do additional investigation on. And At one point, William, I called up Andrews Air Force Base again. And I spoke to the acting base historian. And he said to me, well, have you heard of Sam Fox? And I had absolutely no idea what he was talking about. And he said, well, Sam Fox is not a person. It's an organization. The Sam Fox Association is a group of retired Air Force veterans who served on Air Force One and in the unit that supplied the personnel for top government aircraft and the officials who flew on them. And a year later, I was able to attend one of the triennial reunions of the Sam Fox Association in person at Andrews Air Force Base. And there I came face to face with men who worked directly with President Kennedy in person on Air Force One and men who had served on Air Force Two and suddenly I was immersed in living history because these men all had ultra high security clearances and unprecedented access to the President of the United States and those who interacted with him, which meant they had solid gold knowledge of many things that the press pool and white house aides did not see did not hear did not witness on november 22nd so So
0: for people who sorry to interrupt but people who uh, don't know air force two would be lyndon baines johnson's plane is that right
1: yes uh actually although again for shorthand purposes i say air force two the truth is that in 1963 this aircraft which would be made available to Lyndon Johnson, um, was not officially or even technically dubbed Air Force Two. The actual Air Force personnel who served on it and who served as part of this unit um, always referred to it as the backup plane, unquote, and nothing else. It was the backup plane. So some of the men I spoke to had never even heard the phrase Air Force Two until I interviewed them decades later. But yes, Air Force Two, and and that is a more common and semi-official designation today, is the aircraft which serves the Vice President, who in 1963 was Lyndon Baines Johnson. So those men also were vitally important. Lyndon Baines Johnson was in Dallas with President Kennedy, They, of course, rode in the same motorcade. Uh, Therefore, Air Force One and Air Force Two were both at Love Field in Dallas, Texas, on November 22nd.
0: Right, and I think Parkland Hospital and Love Field are right next to each other. They're very close.
1: They are, uh, I would have to say they were within approximately a mile of each other. Uh, I don't believe they are immediately adjacent or co-located, but it is a short trip from Parkland to Love Field, and you, (laughs) intentionally or inadvertently, you raised an important issue there, William, uh, because a great deal of what people need to understand about the reality of November 22nd comes down to time chronology. And I go into this in riveting detail in my book, Undercover of Night, because time analysis is vitally important, absolutely crucial to solving this case. Many people, William, are familiar with a movie about Watergate from the 1970s, All the President's Men, in which a character says, follow the money, but I want to make it explicitly clear to everyone listening that in the JFK assassination, it's not about following the money. It's about following the chronology and understanding what happened when and where and analyzing why that happened. So, there are some absolutely seismic shifts that people's minds will undergo when they read under cover of night. Because I'm not here to uh, prop up old, obsolete theories. I'm not here to make anyone comfortable. I'm not here to soothe them by saying that some antediluvian belief which they might hold is okay, because what I have done in this two-volume book is not only eviscerate the false official version of events from the United States government, but I have also kicked down the door of Theories and hypotheses and scenarios which simply are not true. And I know that a lot of very good people who are intelligent and sincere and well intentioned still believe certain things about this crime which are manifestly untrue. Interesting. And,
0: and there's a lot of stuff being about switch coffins, coffin showing up at Bethesda early. Switched right. bodies. There's just all kinds of stories. Well,
1: that that actually that area of the case is a very serious area, but it is different than people have thought. Um, let me pay some tribute to some people who are not the people you may be expecting when I say this. Um, two really brilliant individuals, Fred Newcomb and Perry Adams, produced a book back in 1974, but they did not publish it commercially at the time. Uh, They distributed it strictly to the Kennedy family, some Justice Department officials, and to members of Congress. Um, Their book raised some very important issues. One senator described it as concise and extremely well-documented. But that book did not gain traction at the time because it wasn't available commercially. And for many years, bootleg copies were sold apparently from Canada, and it was not published commercially until approximately 2011. Uh, Subsequently, seven years later, after 1974, In early 1981 a book came out called Best Evidence which, excuse me, had some additional data and seemed fairly logical, but as I did my own research I realized that there were a number of errors, a significant number of errors in Best Evidence, And that, in fact, the true story, which I uncovered thanks in part to the direct interviewing of U.S. Air Force personnel, the true story is worse than what was contained in the pages of best evidence there are and that's
0: some- david lifton right david S.
1: Lipton. yeah uh well he was the official author um gotcha. in my book you're going to learn some very surprising things about that book and about its true authorship uh, but leaving that aside for the moment the question of post-mortem damage to the body of the president is an entirely valid question And the reality of it is something that people did not figure out. Lifton did not know what precisely happened. He did not know where it happened. He did not know when it happened. And he did not know what implements or tools or equipment were employed to make that happen. And unlike Lifton and other investigators, I made it my business to find out directly from the sources. So I spoke to U.S. Air Force personnel, I spoke to civilian government personnel, I spoke to journalists who had been there in the motorcade, at Parkland, at Love Field, aboard Air Force One. I did extremely careful, detailed, thorough interviews to uncover what was actually occurring. I wasn't interested in theories or hypotheses. I was interested in nailing down the reality of the event. And that's what I've done.
0: And what was the rationale for them to remove the president's body back to DC? Well, I don't understand how they How that even occurred
1: okay that's an excellent question actually and it's one that continues to vex people to this day the official gloss on the answer is well golly no one really knew if this might be a soviet conspiracy or some sort of prelude to a further attack on the United States. So, gosh golly gee, we really ought to just get everyone back to Washington and uh, hunker down and figure things out from there. That's, that's the kind of generic sheen which the government and its defenders try to put on this hasty and precipitous exit from Parkland Hospital in Dallas. The real reason is far different and far more disturbing. And in order to answer that, I'll take a moment here, William, to acquaint people with some new concepts and to disabuse them of some old notions, which a lot of people have absorbed almost unconsciously. Almost through osmosis. Um, first of all, as I'm sure you know, william and and many of our listeners are aware, uh, a great many people think that President Kennedy was killed in a perfectly executed plot that was carried out with lightning precision by superhuman killers who were just at the top of their game and who managed to successfully kill the president and vanish into the ether, never to be seen again. It was a perfect crime. That's a notion which many people hold. I am here to tell you that nothing, and I do mean nothing, could possibly be further from the truth. So one of the things that I bring up in my book is this. The assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy was a catastrophic, unmitigated disaster from the plotter's point of view. The men who killed John Kennedy were clever, fiendishly intelligent, and so on. But, to use the vernacular, they choked on November 22nd. The murder of President Kennedy in Dealey Plaza was not a perfectly executed textbook covert operation. It was a massive failure for reasons that people will learn when they read my book. Do
0: do you care to share a few examples?
1: um, Yes, some examples. Uh, First of all, the plot to kill John Kennedy failed before the shooting even started in Dealey Plaza. And it failed minutes before that shooting began. In addition, major errors occurred by the president's killers in Dealey Plaza itself. And, without divulging too much up front, I can tell you this. Prior to my book, no one on this planet... discovered or understood the true casualty toll in Dealey Plaza on Friday, November 22nd, 1963. The true casualty toll is different than you thought it was. Officially, President Kennedy was killed Governor John Connolly was wounded, and a bystander named James Tague was very superficially wounded. That's the official casualty toll. In my new book, you and everyone will learn a very different number of casualties, and why that occurred, and... how that affected this effort to kill one man. Um, I can tell you that shocking mistakes were made by the killers of President Kennedy. They were not perfect. They did not execute a textbook covert operation. They failed. They messed up They did not execute. And if you happen to be a fan of American football, you are familiar with the concept of a coach drawing up plays on a chalkboard or a whiteboard or on a digital screen with X's and O's. And if you have ever watched an American football telecast, you have heard a million sports cliches about the fact that no matter how beautifully you draw up a play in football, if the men on the field do not execute that play correctly, it is a disaster. And in fact, you end up with what's called a busted play. That's the term people use in football in the United States. A busted play is something that goes wrong And frequently, you end up with a quarterback scrambling for his life, trying desperately to avoid a sack, trying desperately to find a receiver. Everything has broken down. People missed their assignments. They missed a block. They missed a tackle. And that is a perfect analogy for what happened on Elm Street in dealey plaza on friday november 22nd 1963 it was a catastrophic busted play
0: but they still got the president so so he's they they did
1: they did the problem however is and let me throw another concept out there that people need to be cognizant of if you ask a hundred million people What was the goal on November 22nd? What was the killer's goal? 99.829% of those people are going to say to you, the goal, of course, was to kill President Kennedy. And that sounds logical, that sounds reasonable, that sounds intelligent, that sounds true. But it isn't. And let me explain why. The goal of the killers on November 22nd was not merely to kill President Kennedy. The goal of those killers was twofold. One to kill President Kennedy, and two, to get away with it. And that second part of the equation, getting away with it, is why so many strange and grisly and macabre things were perpetrated on November 22nd. If people had simply wanted to kill President Kennedy, they could have pushed him down the stairs at the White House. I mean, they could have, have drugged
0: him. He was getting shots all the time, Dr. Feelgood. They could have poisoned him. There was no Yes,
1: Dr. exactly. You are absolutely correct, William. They could have poisoned his turtle soup. They could have spiked his Heineken that he liked to drink in the evening. They could have, you know, shot down Air Force One, in July of 1963, they could have, could have put a grenade in his scrambled eggs or what have you. If the goal was simply to kill JFK, they had a million ways to do it without leaving Washington DC. But the goal, I reiterate, was not simply to kill the man. The goal was to kill him and get away with it. And the next question is, well, why? What is this thing about getting away with it? Let me explain. The people who killed President Kennedy were not grizzled kamikaze pilots left over from World War II. They were not on a mission to kill him even at the cost of their own lives. The men who killed President Kennedy wanted to get away with that crime and enjoy The rest of their lives. So they were not there to sacrifice themselves, they were there to kill the president and do so in such a way that they could get away with it. And yet, on November 22nd, these killers failed miserably to properly execute a careful plan that they had worked out for a long, long time. And as a result, the casualty toll was different than it was supposed to be. Only one person was supposed to be shot and killed in Dealey Plaza on November 22nd, and that was a guy from Massachusetts, John Kennedy. Instead, You ended up with President Kennedy killed, and Governor Connolly seriously wounded, and James Tagg also wounded superficially, but wounded. And suddenly, what was supposed to be a clean, simple, focused, and efficient operation had gone awry. So I'm answering the question you asked a little earlier, William, which is, Why were they in a hurry to get out of Dallas? Well, the killers of John Kennedy were in a hurry to get out of Dallas because things had gone so terribly wrong. And things had gone so wrong because they choked. They failed. They did not execute properly the plan that they had in mind. And I will tell you something else, William. If they had executed their plan properly, if no one in the JFK assassination plot had made any mistakes, then no one on Earth, not even you and not even me, would have ever figured it out. The only reason that there are pathways to understand this crime is because it was drastically and imperfectly executed in real time. They messed up. They messed up so incredibly badly that a great deal of desperate improvisation had to occur after their monumental failures in Dealey Plaza
0: right tippet and then the, the cover of the hit list on the JFK assassination
1: well very long. I'm not even talking about a hit list I'm not even talking about uh tippet or witnesses or any of that I'm I'm talking very specifically as people will see in my book about the presidential party and all of the people who had to be deceived who had to be misled very dramatically and very quickly in order to save an assassination plot that was falling apart in real time on November 22nd. Um, Most people have never really grasped this point, but this was not a smooth operation. Many people look at this and say, well, you know, they managed to kill the president, so I guess all's well that ends well from the plotter's perspective, but that isn't true. The reality is that it was a sudden nightmare, a nightmare at noon for the killers of the president, and they had to scramble and Much of that scrambling involved activity that took place in front of key United States Air Force personnel who were never interviewed by the Warren Commission, they were never interviewed by the Rockefeller Commission, they were never interviewed by the Hart Schweiker Subcommittee, they were never interviewed by the HSCA in the 1970s, and they were never interviewed By the ARRB in the 1990s. The fact is that I am the only human being who found and interviewed many of these key Air Force witnesses, who had ultra-high security clearances, who worked directly with the President, who loaded and unloaded aircraft, who serviced aircraft, who served food and drinks to President Kennedy, who flew and co-piloted his aircraft. So I've spoken to people ranging from the pilot of Air Force One and the pilot of Air Force Two, to co-pilots, navigators, flight engineers, flight stewards, ground crew, and I learned absolutely astonishing things from men who were really there, Really on duty, really witnessing firsthand at close quarters what was really occurring on November 22nd. And what really happened? What really happened? and, And that is why, you know, much of the power of this two volume work derives from the integrity and the candor of these United States Air Force veterans, many of whom complimented me for the depth and care and accuracy of my questions to them. I didn't try to promote a theory to anyone. I asked them what they saw, heard and did on November 22nd.
0: Gotcha. And who was the high who was the high-ranking United States Air Force officials you you know? Do you know their names?
1: Yes, I do. And I know the names of a great many other people who will, those names will make people fall off their chair. Um, Top generals of the United States Air Force in 1963 uh, were aware of the upcoming assassination of the president, had foreknowledge of that upcoming assassination, and took certain steps and permitted certain steps to help guarantee the success of the Kennedy assassination in 1963. And those officers included some very well-known names and some unknown names to the general public. But I found them and I uncovered their roles and I figured out what their motivation was for joining an existing plot. And I want to give credit to uh, a researcher, the late John Judge, who for many years had said, without proving it in my view, but had said, well, I think Curtis LeMay was involved. Well, I knew John Judge and liked John Judge, and I continue to respect John Judge, and I did not believe that John ever developed a a solid case for LeMay, but John Judge's instincts were correct. Curtis LeMay was involved, but not as the leader of the plot, and Curtis LeMay's true role was different... Than what a lot of people imagine it would have been. What was his true role? His true role consisted in large measure of what he did not do on November 22nd versus following his own personal and political instincts to use that crime as the cover to launch Armageddon. And I don't use those terms lightly. I don't have to exaggerate or embellish anything at all because I've done the work that others did not do and I have found the information often straight from the horse's mouth. Curtis LeMay admitted that on more than one occasion he attempted to create or provoke World War III. And he was deadly serious. He was not joking. He was an extremely dangerous individual. And John Kennedy made a grave error of judgment in elevating. Curtis Emerson LeMay, to the position of United States Air Force Chief of Staff. Uh, Kennedy felt that it would be hard not to elevate LeMay, who had a long and if you will, distinguished career to that point. But Kennedy was not comfortable with LeMay, not happy But Kennedy felt basically that there would be an eruption of fury from the military, from Congress, and from the press if he failed to elevate Curtis LeMay from Vice Chief of Staff to Chief of Staff. And so, with a great deal of reluctance, Kennedy made Curtis LeMay the Chief of Staff. And this was a profound error on John Kennedy's part. It was one of the worst personnel decisions that he ever made, and it contributed to the success of the criminal plot which took John Kennedy's life.
0: Was Her Lemay story, in the um, was Lemay in the autopsy room, or was he in the anywhere but that? That's he, a good I'm
1: question. Sure. There have been allegations over time about that. Uh, one of the person who one of the people who said so at a certain point was Paul Kelly O'Connor, a United States Navy uh, individual who worked at Bethesda, who was uh, in the autopsy room that night. Uh, Paul O'Connor did not say that LeMay was there during some of the earliest interviews that he gave. Eventually, he seemed to indicate or think that LeMay was there. Uh, The fact is that there's no piece of paper anywhere that I'm aware of, which indicates that LeMay was physically present. Two FBI agents, James Seibert and Francis O'Neill, were present and tried to create a fairly comprehensive uh, roster of anybody who came into or out of the Bethesda Navy Hospital morgue. Uh, They don't mention LeMay being present. Um, There have been other attempts to create master lists of those who came in and out of the morgue. None of those lists truly document LeMay's presence. But as I say in my book, in a way, it doesn't truly matter whether LeMay showed up to gloat as President Kennedy's corpse was dissected. Whether LeMay was physically present in that morgue or not, he was certainly there in spirit. And he was quite satisfied (laughs) that uh, President Kennedy had been killed. To Curtis LeMay, President Kennedy was irresponsible, negligent, a security risk to the United States of America, uh, if you will, to use an old-fashioned term, a weak sister, Um, and LeMay had volcanically angry views about a number of other Kennedy administration officials. For example, he once said of Defense Secretary Robert McNamara, could we do any worse if Khrushchev was Secretary of Defense. Now, for some people, that would simply be rhetorical hyperbole, but Curtis LeMay was an individual who was not only as bad as he seemed, but much more dangerous than people came to realize. Um, Some of the things that he put into the autobiography co-authored by McKinley Cantor, a book called Mission with LeMay, which did not come out until after the JFK assassination, uh, made it very, very clear just how far Curtis LeMay would go to provoke an all-out nuclear war with the Soviet Union. And Curtis LeMay, over time, gave a series of interviews to various people, including Air Force historians and others, in which he bemoaned the fact that once upon a time he claimed that he had sent a great many american planes over vladivostok in the soviet union at high noon and he wistfully said gosh you know we could have dropped bombs then and pretty much won the war with Very few casualties, I'm paraphrasing there. So Curtis LeMay, there are some very surprising things about him that I included in my book. Um, He was trying to provoke nuclear war as early as the late 1940s, long before the JFK assassination. And even after the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962 was resolved peacefully, Curtis LeMay was angry and repeatedly urged President Kennedy that despite the peaceful resolution of the crisis, the United States really ought to go in and bomb Cuba anyway. So that was the level of bellicose brutality which characterized Curtis LeMay.
0: Who was, the, who was the general? Was he involved in offering the uh, was it Northwoods? Operation to Kennedy?
1: Uh, That's a great question, William. An excellent question. Actually, Operation Northwoods was a Pentagon response to Kennedy administration pressure for ideas about what to do regarding Fidel Castro. All of this emanating from the United States' utter fiasco of attempting to uh, invade Cuba at the notorious Bay of Pigs, or Bahia de Cochinos, in April 1961. Uh, Both John and Robert Kennedy overreacted to the failure of that invasion. Both John and Robert Kennedy uh, wanted to save face or regain face by ousting Fidel Castro, uh, and therefore Robert Kennedy, in particular, being particularly uh, hot-headed and ferocious in those days, um, pressured various elements of the United States government, uh, from the special group, to the CIA, to elements of the State Department, to the Pentagon, to come up with ways to somehow oust Fidel Castro by lethal means or non-lethal means. And Operation Northwoods was a grotesque and criminal plan developed within the Pentagon, which involved false flag criminal activity designed to falsely implicate the Cuban government in atrocities on u.s soil or in international airspace or in international waters such as the destruction of a commercial airliner or uh, bombings to be carried out in miami or washington dc or other cities it was a completely depraved and criminal plan it was technically presented to President Kennedy, not by General LeMay, but by General Lyman Lemnitzer, and it appalled Kennedy enough that he was not about to approve it. And so Operation Northwoods uh, was never
0: never implemented never implemented, no,
1: never implemented never implemented in the 1960s at any rate let's put it that way but it was a blueprint from within the united states government for false flag state sponsored terrorist events to be carried out as a pretext for the U.S. government to commit a wrongful assault and invasion of a sovereign nation called Cuba. It was a thoroughly criminal act and eventually uh, President Kennedy got rid of Lyman Lemnitzer by giving him another post. Uh, Many of the Joint Chiefs were upset because Kennedy forced many out or gave them other assignments and tried to remake the joint chiefs. It was a losing effort on Kennedy's part, but he was trying to eliminate some of the most arch-conservative voices. Now, obviously, Kennedy, in a moment of abject weakness, elevated Curtis LeMay to the joint okay. chiefs. So, there was inconsistency and dangerously bad judgment on John Kennedy's part when it came to personnel.
0: Yeah, and- terrible. Made, he made worse decisions than Trump. Um, one of the other things that people may not know is that Stanley Kubrick used LeMay as a kind of exemplar when he was writing Dr. Strangelove. So the character of, like, Buck Turgesson is right. based on LeMay. Well,
1: but even... You're correct, but even more disturbingly uh, LeMay was one of the influences on a pair of writers who ultimately wrote a novel called Seven Days in May about a military coup in the United States carried out by a charismatic United States Air Force general who was opposed to a peace-loving, nuclear test-ban-treaty-loving weakling in the Oval Office. And that novel, published in 1962, was a clear metaphor for LeMay and JFK. John Kennedy read that book and loved it so much that when a Hollywood movie was made also called Seven Days in May. Kennedy assisted the filmmakers by, for example, going to Hyannisport for a weekend so that the filmmakers could stage a riot scene outside the actual White House on the sidewalk just beyond that iron fence beyond the north portico of the White House. Um, Kennedy took the novel very seriously, and I can tell people without again divulging too much that John Fitzgerald Kennedy not only feared assassination, but had specific concerns about a plot to unseat him and kill him, and he made it clear to various people Prior to his assassination in Dallas, John Kennedy, let me put it to you this way John Kennedy identified his killers before his death.
0: Hmm.
1: And I will how leave. Did you, how later. did you do that? Say again.
0: How did he do that?
1: He did that by explicitly telling. A number of people close to him personally and officially. John Kennedy, again, I'm not exaggerating or embellishing. President Kennedy sensed and articulated some of what was going to happen to him and by whom the coup would be led and administered. And these were deadly serious comments, not joking comments, not something said over a Heineken at the end of a long day. These were absolutely chilling remarks from John Kennedy. And he did have a sense of who would kill him and overthrow him. And he failed to take action soon enough to prevent that. Now, this is not about blaming the victim. I'm not blaming John Kennedy for his assassination in any way. What I am saying is that President Kennedy and his brother Robert believed erroneously that they had more time than they really did. But the plot to kill him began far earlier than anyone has ever realized before. And in my book, I tell the readers precisely when it began and why. And the answers are not what anyone has believed previously. And that's part of why this new book is something I am so tremendously proud of, because I did the work not just research and interviewing, but the critical analysis of the data to uncover the actual origin of this plot, the actual chronology, the actual timeline, and the actual perpetrators.
0: Interesting. And for people who don't know, I did a show on Seven Days in May. I analyzed it with uh, Tom and And you're Brett. absolutely familiar with it. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Excuse me. I, I, I did a show with Tom and Brett. On from, from PSYOP Cinema, and I titled it The Essential Overlooked uh, Piece of the JFK Assassination because it is. It's obviously being played out. Uh, time, that's why he promoted it. But we are at the one hour mark, Sean. Where's the mm-hmm. uh, is there anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap it up? Oh,
1: uh, I think you raised some very interesting questions and questions of really broad interest. I, I want to tell everyone who has the opportunity to listen to this podcast that, all modesty aside, very rarely does a book come along by anyone that dramatically rewrites and fundamentally transforms our understanding of a major event. This doesn't happen every day. My work has now spanned 40 years, and the kinds of absolutely stunning surprises that people are going to encounter in this book are going to be very unsettling, very disturbing, and very enlightening. And for those people who are just sick and tired of rehashed old theories about Lee Oswald, or the Lone Gunman, or the Single Bullet, or a CIA coup, or the Bilderberg Group, or what have you. I think people are going to be astounded by the opportunity to find out about an entire cast of characters they've never heard of before. Real men who really wore the uniform, who put their lives on the line for this country, and who, in what I believe, is their greatest service to their country, spoke candidly to me about what they saw, what they heard, what they did on November 22nd and that story is drastically different than anything you currently believe about this monumental crime. It is genuinely astonishing, and I am proud to have finished this massive and lengthy project, but I can assure you it reads Faster than a gripping novel, yet it is rigorously documented throughout, and you can look at all of my sources throughout in the footnotes and in the index, and you will understand that these U.S. Air Force veterans have helped me to literally rewrite the story of the assassination of President Kennedy.
0: Gotcha. So, and you right now you have a hardcover of the book. Are you intending to have a paperback or an audio book?
1: Yeah, at some point uh, in the future, uh, the decision was made with the publisher to begin exclusively with hardback, hardcover. And i uh, I have some copies with me. I've received my author copies now. Um, it is an absolutely Gorgeous presentation, and at some point, I imagine in the next six months to a year, there may well be an audiobook, perhaps paperback, um, possibly an ebook. Some of those, where's the the
0: best place for people to get the book? Is it Amazon right right now? The
1: place to get it, um, if they go to Amazon.com and simply type in my name, Sean Fetter, or Type in the, t- the main title of the book, under Cover of Night. They will find two pages on Amazon, one for each volume of the book. It is a two-volume book, and each volume is half of the book. So they don't... Neither half is complete on its own, in other words. Um, and by the way, <laughs> I'm happy to note that the second volume... Uh, has been rather consistently over the past week uh the top seller in the criminal evidence category on amazon
0: congratulations
1: thank you Uh, how Uh, many
0: footnotes do you have
1: uh i would have to say thousands because at nearly 1100 pages there are many pages which have two three five footnotes per page so there's no question that there have to be (laughs) thousands of footnotes, but they're they're placed conveniently at the bottom of each page, so you don't have to flip back and forth through a large volume looking for endnotes. I personally, as a reader myself, hate that. I despise having to deal with the you chore.
0: Like the end notes, you don't like the yeah,
1: So now, if you um, see something shocking whoa, whoa, on a page...
0: Whoa whoa whoa, 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 whoa. Where's the best place to reach out to you? Is there a social media or a website?
1: Absolutely. We absolutely. There's uh, and there's actually in the book itself toward the end, I have a, a short section about the author. And I also have a short section called how to contact the author. Now, most writers don't put that in their book, but I do. I want people to contact me. And there are four email addresses in my book that people can reach me at. So, for example, for media interview requests, it's media at seanfetter.com. For reader comments, readers at seanfetter.com. For people who may have new evidence or additional data that they would like to share with me, um, evidence at seanfetter.com. And for those wanting to Uh, book me for a speech or presentation at a symposium or a university, they can contact me at speeches at seanfetter.com. Gotcha. Great.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I I wish you the best for the book, and people can check it out. The title of the book is Undercover of Night, the United States Air Force and the Assassination of JFK, John F. Kennedy, by Sean Fetter. Last name is spelled f-e-t-t-r and i will put a link to your email address in the show notes thank you so much thank you let's do that.